Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture Ops Podcast. I remember very vividly when I was handed my first resignation. At the time, I was still incredibly naive. Uh, I was a very young founder. The person in question was uh, an awesome individual named Jess, and she was moving on to do something that made perfect sense for her career and her long-term development. But unfortunately, that wasn't what I was thinking when she told me. If I'm honest, I was thinking about me and what the impact was going to be on me, rather than why this was a great move for her. I'm glad to say that 10 years on, I don't have that, those same reactions these days. I'm much more able to focus on what is best for the individual, rather than worrying about what the effect is going to be on the company. It's pretty clear that the best organizations address the elephant in the room head on, that their best people probably won't be with them forever. And in fact, an organization's role is to be a stepping stone to help someone work out what they want to do and where they want to go. So today I want to unpack that a little more. What what is the impact of an organization leaning into that elephant and crafting a culture that embraces career development? And to do that with me, I want to welcome someone who is very passionate about the importance of owning your career development and betting on yourself. Laurie Ruderman, author of Betting on You and host of Punk Rock HR. Hi, Laurie. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks for having me today. Good. Um, yeah, super, super glad to have you. I'm a big fan uh, of Punk Rock HR, longtime listener. So, um, yeah, um, feel very honored to have you on the show today. Tell us a little bit about... Um, bit about your story and what led you to writing uh, your recent book, Betting on You, and, and why you're so passionate about career development. Well, thanks for asking. There's nothing like listening to someone talk about their own career journey. <laughs> Quite boring, but I'm here to tell everybody that the only thing I've ever done in my life is own my own career. And there have been bits and pieces, moments where I kind of let it go and listen to others just briefly and let them tell me, I think you're suited for this, or I think you're suited for that. And they were always wrong. I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And when I stayed true to that, I was successful. And when I made decisions based out of fear or financial insecurity, those decisions were always terrible. And i found that irony to be especially poignant because I worked in human resources, where we always want to do talent development, map out these strategies, and we so very rarely include the voice of the worker. And so I wrote a book just to talk about my career journey and the journeys of others, and I truly believe that we in human resources and talent and people ops fix work by fixing ourselves first. And I use my life and the life of my friends and family as case studies to lean into this idea that when you're confident, courageous, and bold, you make better decisions. So that's what that's all about. Amazing. And 
who's who's the who's the book for is there a is there a person that you had in your head when you were writing it yeah you know most authors are narcissists i've learned this firsthand and so first and foremost i wrote the book to myself like a younger version because I remember being out there and listening to all these voices and wondering, should I stay in human resources? Should I be a writer? And I did look at career books and they were all universally terrible. Nothing really served my purpose. So I wrote the book that I thought I might've needed in my twenties and early thirties. But, you know, I have found the feedback to be all over the map from people of multiple generations, different genders, different identities, that people are finding bits and pieces that are helpful within the book, no matter who they are or what their background is. So I'm especially reassured by that. Mm. So the book um, is is currently pre-order only in the UK. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, that's one of those things where they stagger the book launch. But yeah, you know, it's pre-order in the UK. Uh, I believe the release date is now officially at the end of the year. That's the slow world of publishing, although available um, immediately via Kindle, if you're so inclined. So thank you. Yes, which is where I've got my copy. And uh, in reading uh, it, I guess it made me think, how do organizations embrace some of this some of this philosophy. Um, how can we support the individuals within our organizations to, to bet on themselves, to, to take ownership and responsibility of their career development? Is it clear to you as you think about the organizations that you've worked in over your careers? Is there an obvious difference between those organizations that have embraced it versus those that haven't? Yes. I think organizations that are... Um, <laughs> So let me let me just take a step back here and say that no organization does this well. I know, you know, we are always looking for that optimal state, that case study of a company that really allows its people to determine their own path and do really great work and work at that intersection of purpose and meaning and impact profitability and revenue. I don't think that happens very often. I think it happens more locally than it does on a global corporate, you know, schedule here. But I would say that organizations that have um, less rigor around human resources and really empower line leaders, managers, and employees to do some of the work that was traditionally done by HR are further ahead, which is why I believe in really defunding the current corporate state of HR and reallocating that money to invest in technology, training, tools, resources for individual workers and four line leaders themselves. So I think when we remove this global industrial HR component out of corporations, employees do better. And and what is it about that that you think means that employees do better? I know that's a big question, but... <laughs> well, it's a, I'm speaking in a wonderful podcast generality, so I love you, that you're going a little bit deeper. So what does it mean for an employee to do better? Well, it means that an employee feels a sense of autonomy, a sense of purpose. They can go to work and determine their own path. They don't feel encumbered by rules and regulations. They do not feel as if they can't speak to their supervisor, or they actually feel like they have an advocate in the organization. That word advocate is always interesting and trips me up because people in human resources say, well, I'm here to be an advocate for career mobility in learning and development. But it's so rare that HR actually delivers on that promise. 
So that's why it's so important for me to really rethink the whole structure of all of this. You know, there's been talk here in the United States of what would a fully outsourced human resources department truly look like? Outsourcing people ops, outsourcing talent development, outsourcing succession planning, career mobility, all of it. What if companies really bought the pieces that they think they need. Would this look a little bit different? I love the thought exercise. I think it could be interesting and it certainly couldn't be any worse than what many mm. corporations have. Yeah, well, I, I it's nice to see you not sitting on the fence, right? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about doing things differently because the status quo got us here, but it won't get us there to the promised land where people feel they can show up and do great work and impact the world and, you know, turn around climate change and really um, understand how to eradicate poverty. All of these really important things that I think a corporate institution can do, we won't do it if we just do what we're doing here in 2021. I, I totally agree. Uh, changing tax slightly, I've had conversations with CEOs uh, you know, first-time leaders, uh, founders of organizations um, who have said that I guess they're skeptical of addressing head-on this idea that, hey, look, we know that not everyone that currently works with us is always going to work for us. They're, they're skeptical that if they were to invest resource and time internally on helping people actually think about not just what are the things they want to do within the business they're currently in? But what is the long-term career journey that they're going on? They're skeptical that that would drive more people away than it would keep in the business. Do you agree? How do you see that? What's your perspective? You know, CEOs are supposed to be strategic thinkers, and that's an absolutely stupid and short-term way of thinking about talent because nobody has a job forever, right? Yeah. I mean, who do you know anymore? that work their entire career within one company and one position. Furthermore, the longer someone stays, often the more toxic and backwards they become. I think about all the people of my parents' generation who had jobs for 20 years, 25 years, my own dad. And the more he wanted to grow and change, the more he found himself kind of mired in politics and weird cultural aspects within the corporation old relationships that saddled him. He was never really able to reinvent himself. And the same goes for many of his peers. So I think a CEO who says, I'm not focused on talent development and career mobility and training and all the good stuff because I'm afraid the workers will take that knowledge and leave is a CEO who's stupid and deserves to go out of business. Yeah, agrees 100% with you on that one. The other side of the coin is how do you use that to attract people? Is there a is there a part of this that it's important to sort of mobilize during the the hiring process, having conversations with people early on in that journey and saying, look, also we understand that you're not going to be with us forever and our job is to help you get to that that next next place. You know, currently globally, they say something like 50 to 75% of the professional workforce is squatting in their jobs because of COVID-19. They're just hanging out really afraid to move, but when the economy starts to open up, which is starting to do globally, there's going to be this great talent swap. This is something I'm really passionate about because what will happen if we don't do this right is that people will change jobs and nothing will change for them. 
They'll have this moment of adrenaline where they take the new job and it's all very exciting. And then within six months, they'll be back to being disengaged. And so the way the current HR structure can disintermediate all of this is by really rethinking training, development, learning, growth opportunities, and using this as a source of attraction. And speaking very honestly about this, we know you're squatting in your job. We know you haven't learned anything since 2018. Come on, we're being honest here. Look at what we're doing. Look at the commitment we're making. We know you won't be with us in 2030. We don't care. We want you to show up every day passionate, interested, curious. We believe that that's not disruptive. That's part of the way we do business. And we want to help you get to wherever you want to be down the road. And the time you spend with us will be worthwhile. You will learn. You will grow. Had anybody said that to me in my career, my journey would have been totally different. But instead, what I heard were all of these false promises about the work itself and not my own development. And look where I ended up being a podcaster. Come on now. Who wants that? (laughs) I mean, clearly everyone through (laughs) COVID-19. Too many people. Too many people want it. It's not glamorous. (laughs) For sure. But but who are we to critique? Um, I suppose also there's a performance element to this as well, which I think it's important to be candid about, which is that I don't believe that... um, you know, investing in people's training and their learning and their, their development. Um, uh, you know, I don't believe that is just about their career mobility. It's also about their their ability to to do their current job really, really well. Like, you, you know, you uh, you're going to see an improvement in how engaged people are, the quality of work, the way they show up, all of these things, right? It it, it it's a you know it's a beautiful cycle that just improves every aspect of the employee experience. Well, that's what the academics say, and I certainly hope that's true. You know, I believe it to be true. When I'm learning and growing, I'm sur- I'm doing more than surviving. I'm thriving. I'm performing at a higher level, and so I think there's a lot to be said for this connection between happy, engaged, high-performing workers and their learning journey. It's super important. Like, that's not just me. That's Harvard Business. That's, you know, Stanford. That's Cornell. All the big schools here in America have proven that to be true through their research. But I also just think it makes for a better work environment. Like, if people are learning and they're curious and they're interested, you know, it makes for people being pleasant. It makes for a better conversation. It just makes for an overall better climate is the word I want to use, not even culture. You know, think about all the jobs you've ever had where you just show up and, you know, you make, as we say here in America, you're just making the donuts, right? You're going to work, you're putting one foot in front of the other. That's a miserable existence. And as a CEO, I wouldn't be incredibly proud of that. And so I just think this idea of learning is one of these unique things that um, improves so much and is really quite easy to do, you know, like it's just allocating a little bit of your budget, putting it in the hands of really smart people who can make great recommendations and then trusting your workforce to execute on their learning journeys. So yeah, simple. Simple. And and I guess you've touched on some of the things that people can do. Um, we're going to circle back to that. I, I kind of want to slightly address what we think the impact of COVID has had on on this. Um, and, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, people people squatting on jobs and thinking about moving. 
But do you think that people's perspective about what they expect from work has changed during the pandemic? Do you think the pandemic has shifted our our kind of perspective on life and what and what, and what we're looking for from how we spend our time? Well, I hope so. You know, I'm old enough to have lived through um, September 11th here in the United States. And people said, oh, everything's going to be different. You know, we're going to treat one another with kindness and we're going to understand and lean into empathy and compassion. And within 20 years, all of that goodwill is gone. So I worry a little bit about the global climate around COVID because we live in a world that tells us we are resource constrained, um, you know, There's conflict all around. We are living in a time of xenophobia, right? A lot of fear. And I don't think COVID wiped all that out. But I do think for some workers, they have survived the pandemic and they're like, I'm not going back to 2019. I didn't live through a lockdown and the psychological torment of being around my family all the time to do things like I did them in January of 2020. So in that case, people who are active in their own lives, who bet on themselves, who choose themselves first, will make decisions about work that are healthier and stronger and better. But I do fear a lot of people will emerge from COVID with a sense of learned helplessness, with a sense of fear, and will just take something to make them feel stable in case the next lockdown comes along. And that that definitely worries me. But I, I think there's an opportunity to bet on yourself and to take a risk right now. Certainly, if you survive a pandemic, imagine what else you can survive. Yeah, I think I think I agree. And I, I believe also that we as organizations have a responsibility um, in, in how we support and create those foundations and look after our people and um, give them the, the best environment to kind of interact in as we, as we can. Well, and part of this goes back to the structure of corporations, you know, uh, equal pay for equal work, really rethinking executive compensation and freeing up some budget, uh, career mobility, learning benefits beyond, you know, what the government provides or what private health insurance provides here in the States. There's a lot of different things we can do as corporate leaders. It's just about being brave and making those choices. But I write in my book that money solves a lot of problems. And we saw that with COVID. Like we've got vaccines that actually work because corporations spent money, because governments spend money. So imagine what you can do as a business leader if you reallocate your budget and really rethink that. Or as a careerist individually, how you spend your own time, attention, dollars, all of that, euros, wherever you are, you know, pounds. All of that is currency. And it's really important for you to rethink how you're spending your time, energy, and individual budgets. So let's go there. Let's talk about, you know, we've talked about the advantages of a culture that embraces career development, you know, happier team, engaged team, better work performance, all of that stuff, Uh, you know, useful in bringing the right people into your organization, but also useful at keeping people inside your organization, obviously for the right reasons. What should Let's start with individuals first. What should individuals do if they want to take ownership of their career development? Where should they start? Well, I mean, I don't want to play armchair psychologist here, but it starts with you exploring who you are and what you want in this world. I think so many of us fall into our careers 
naturally. You know, we're generalists. We have these happenstance careers. We fall into marketing or sales or human resources or procurement just because it happened that way. And it doesn't have to continue like that moving forward. So looking at who you are, what you want out of this world, what it actually costs you to exist, I think are really good places to start. What you can cut back on, what you absolutely need. Who are you essentially? What is your life all about? And just because you arrive at some answers doesn't mean you need to pivot immediately. You can take the slow road to a new life. You know, I realized uh, within about a decade that I was no good in human resources, but it doesn't mean that I quit that job right away. You know, I tried to figure out, okay, how could I keep the job that I have with the income that I have, reduce my expenses, and begin a career as an analyst, as a thinker, as a writer? And that journey for me took a couple of years before I took that big step and went out on my own. So I think, you know, really coming up with this identity map of who you are and what you want in this world, mapping it to a budget, and then mapping it to a plan to get there while still showing up at work and doing your job with integrity is absolutely okay. So I would start there. It's really all about self-knowledge. I think starting with self is, is always the right way to 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 go on these things. And one of the relationships that I believe has the biggest impact in your working experience is whoever your line manager is. You know, we, we know that the data shows us that, you know, people leave jobs uh, more because of the, they've got a bad manager than, than for any other reason, right? It's, it has such a big impact on your experience on a day-to-day day-to-day basis. I know we have managers that listen to this show. If 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 they need to be open to uh, a journey that someone is going on in, in prioritizing their development, what what do they need to do to be available and useful and and enable that? You know, what's the what's the way for them to show up, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Well, certainly to be open-minded and to understand that somebody could want something else for their life, but still do their job with integrity is a really good place to start. You know, I worked for so many line leaders who were like, burn the boats. If you're not in, you're out. You know, and I was like, oh my God, what kind of nonsense is this? You know, I have a life outside of work. I'm not 100% human resources all the time. So I think really being open to the idea that someone could work for you, but also be an artist or a future shopkeeper, go back to school and be a professor, like that's okay as long as they show up and do their work with integrity. And so then you have to ask yourself, how can I help this person do that? Knowing that if they go on a different journey, if they're curious, their time might be even more constrained. Are we working optimally? Are we working efficiently? Do we communicate well on our team? Am I asking my team to do 40 hours or 60 hours with 20 hours of nonsense, right? So really rethinking the way you operate your own department is probably a pretty good place to start. And I will tell you, if you communicate well and you're open to other people's journeys, they may go on that journey and still stay with you. That's the other thing. Do you know how many human resources people I've worked with throughout the years who are like, I'm going to go back to school and be a teacher. Then they explore that path and they're like, hell no. (laughs) I'm going to go open up a yoga studio. And then they realize, oh, that's complex. And I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm more of an intra. I want to do things differently, but they actually have to go on that journey. So I think being open-minded and making sure people have time for that in their lives, two good places to start. 
Yeah, and, and and I would say vulnerability as well. I think, I think sort of sharing your own personal journey as a manager and saying, by the way, I I, I thought I wanted to do this at one point in time, or I tried this, it didn't work, or I tried this and it did work. You know, it, I I think we sometimes think as leaders that we have to show up and have all the answers. Yeah, yeah. Which is um, is not the case, right? No, not at all. And also talking to your people about something other than work. Is probably a pretty good place to start. You know, like I had a boss once for like three months, maybe my best boss ever. And she had a background in art history, had her MFA in art history. And I'm passionate about art. And we talked a lot about art in those three months that I worked with her, which is probably why she went on to do other things in this world. But really lovely conversations. And it made me loyal and it made me passionate about working with her and doing a good job. I wanted to show up for her. So I think, you know, being as human as you possibly can and not buying into this idea of a hierarchical relationship is really important as well. Yeah. I like that. I really like that. Let's switch, I guess. We've, we've thought we've talked about the individual. We've talked about the manager. What about the organization? What about the organization that wants to embrace um, career development, the development of their people outside of necessarily just their time within the business? What are the processes or what are the policies that you would advocate for and say, look, you know, this is this is what the gold standard looks like. Mm, yeah. Well, we don't have a gold standard in our society, but if I were dreaming a little bit, I think really being open around this conversation around learning is super important. And you can have a learning organization even if you are constrained with your budget because all learning is worthwhile. So communicating that. You know, I work with so many people right now in my coaching practice who are just learning for the sake of learning. And I think really encouraging work-life balance Encouraging people to do something outside of work is a pretty good place to start if you can't allocate, you know, three to five percent of your money to a learning budget. So I think, you know, um, being a good leader and showing that you have interests outside of work is probably a pretty cool thing. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of times <laughs> these CEOs will stand up at these all hands meetings and they'll say, I went on a learning journey and I did this and this is how it applies back to work. It would be great if I just heard a CEO say, I'm into biking and I'm learning how to build bikes by breaking them down and just talking about that and having no point would be amazing. Like it would just show the greatest respect for the art of learning and growing. So um, there are ways to do this without being heavy handed and being so corporation focused. I, I like that you talk about the the sort of behavior, the muscle of learning and, and us having to develop that muscle and that, that behavior and, and celebrating learning for the sort of purity that it is rather than having to connect it to, to work or the project that you're focused on or the industry that you're in or the skill that you do every day. And actually, we, we can just learn for the sake of it. That's right. You know, one of the things that I found myself doing during COVID and during the lockdown is really doubling down on my job. But that was difficult because my job for years, for a decade now, has been traveling and speaking. And so instead, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to rebuild my business? Maybe I'll go on Zoom. I talked to other speakers, like especially in the early days, I was working too much. And 
then I'm like, well, I'll watch TV and that doesn't really work your brain. And so eventually I got through my Netflix phase and my puzzle phase and all of that. And I started really thinking I need a hobby. And so I learned kettlebells. Then I got a new camera and I'm like, well, I want to learn how to work this DSLR camera. None of this has anything to do with who I am as, you know, this person in the world of human resources, but learning keeps that muscle fresh. And so when I hear a new idea in the world of work, it doesn't take me as long to catch up because I've been working my brain. And I think a lot of people have been bored and stagnating during COVID. So it's time to start learning again, just to kind of catch up and wake your brain up. So whatever that means for you, whether that means, you know, learning something in your home or learning how to fix something. Well, I I don't know. I'm not an improv comedian here. You pick it, but um, do something different. All learning is worthwhile. Yeah, definitely one of the policies that I see most regularly is, um, you know, an organization saying, you know, look, you've got a thousand pounds a year or you've got 500 pounds a quarter, but, and, and, and it's all for learning and development, but you can only spend it on, you know, management and leadership books that are relevant to what you do, or you can only spend it on courses that are relevant to what you do rather than spend it on doing pottery or, uh, learning how to sketch or, or fix a bike. If, if I'm someone listening to this and going, I understand why that feels like the right move. How do I influence a CEO or a financial director or someone else in a leadership team who's, who's owning that, that budget or that policy to convince them that actually, you know, budget is really well used to just help people fall in love with learning as, as a thing in itself. You know, here's the tricky thing about influence. The more you try to influence someone, the less it happens. And I think at the C-suite level, you can't get people to do things. They have to kind of come to it on their own. So I think any human resources leader, any learning leader who comes in with a deck in bullet points is often already doomed. So yes, there are best practices around, you know, demonstrating what other leading edge companies are doing. And you can certainly put that deck together and make the case for change. But sometimes it's all about just being at the right place at the right time or introducing your CEO to someone who they might respect and encouraging a conversation that way. So what I'm saying is this is not easy and this is not straightforward. And anybody who tells you to put together a deck of best case scenarios, like, and this is what Google does, and this is what, you know, VMware does, all the companies, right, 3M, all the leading organizations, that doesn't necessarily make the case for change. So what I encourage people to do is if they're not seeing something in their organization that they like, if they can implement it on the local level in a free way, do it there, experiment, see if you can create a groundswell. But more importantly, Why don't you go find a company that already does this? Why don't you quit? Why not you? Why don't you bet on yourself and find a way to go work for a company that already appreciates learning and growth and development and career mobility instead of trying to beat your head up against a wall with a CEO who ought to know better already? It's 2021. So for me, that's the better way. Go find a better job. Nice, yeah. I think sometimes we avoid making that recommendation because it feels 
uh, can feel quite difficult and big and abrasive in some terms. But actually, I do think in some instances, it really is the best advice. Dude, I hear this all the time. Oh, quitting your job is a privilege. And oh, not everybody can just up and quit. I didn't say up and quit. I didn't say do this tomorrow. I'm talking about going on your own journey, learning about other corporations that may offer these benefits, learning about what you will stand for and what you stand against personally, individually, what you want out of a corporation. And it doesn't have to be done tomorrow. But there's been a bevy of research out there that says if you're working in an environment and it's toxic or it doesn't offer what you want and you've made a good effort and it doesn't come your way, chances are you're just going to give up and roll over like everybody else in the company. So unless you're like in a super serious position where you can change the organization, your best bet is to make a plan and leave. That's it. That's science. That's research. Yeah. So I think the argument for embracing career development within an organization is is pretty clear. Yeah, I think we did. I think we definitely did. And and actually when I when I say that and hear it, I'm I'm really what I'm thinking about is like, are we building and crafting a culture of learning? Are we celebrating learning? Um we can get distracted by these like big uh, swanky HR terms when actually we're talking about something that human beings have been doing for for centuries, right? Which is just teaching themselves things. It, it sounds super, it sounds super simple, but if there's someone listening to this episode thinking, "Yeah, okay, I I want to embrace career development. I want to start with building and crafting a culture that embraces learning." What do you think is the next action? What's the thing that they can do tomorrow, that they can do this week, that they can do this month that's going to begin that journey for them? Yeah. Well, again, we fix work by fixing ourselves first. So if you want to see it in an organization, you have to be it. So why not schedule time on your calendar every day to learn? This is what leading CEOs do. All the Steve, Steve Jobs, Steve Ballmer, Steve Wozniak, like all the amazing Steves here in America, right? They all have time or had time on their calendars every single day to learn. So maybe it's 10 minutes a day to watch a TED Talk. Maybe it's 15 minutes a day to go talk to somebody who doesn't necessarily work in your department that you're curious about, right? All this can be free. Maybe it's reading something in a journal you would normally not read. You can schedule this time. And if you don't think you have 10 to 15 minutes to do this every single day, well, I can't convince you of that. But it would be real easy for me to look into your diary and find that 10 to 15 minutes for you. You don't want to pay me to do that as a coach, which is what people do pay me to do. Uh, you want to do that on your own and save your money. So start with your own diary, make a schedule, learn something new every day. I love that. So simple. And and with all these things, sometimes the simplest things are the hardest things. But um, uh, there you go. Go schedule the time, make the time, invest in yourself, invest in your own learning. Uh, and as with cultures, I think these things spread from our behaviours, right? And if you've got one person, a few people doing it, um, and it very quickly becomes something the organisation is embracing. Um, Laurie, we're going to wrap it up there. But uh, Obviously, if people want to uh, engage more with the work that, they, that you do, they should read the book, they should go get it on Kindle, they should pre-order for when it drops in the UK. But if they want to um, listen and engage with more of your work, where should they head? Sure, you can go to punkrockhr.com. 
and fall into the ecosystem, I think as the kids say, of all the content and the podcasting and the blogging and all the insufferable stuff that I tend to put up there along with cat photos, but it's all there for your consumption. So thanks for having me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I can confirm the cat photos are superb. Um, I work hard so on go that. There f- <laughs> yeah, well, it, lo- it looks like it. Yeah, and as a long-time listener of uh, Punk Rock HR, I can absolutely 100% recommend it. Thank you, Laurie, for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, sparing the time to talk with us today. Uh, I've got to thank Mel, our producer, behind the virtual glass for keeping the show on the road. And to all of you listening along wherever you are, This is, in fact, the last episode of season two. So I just want to say a thank you to everyone who joined us uh, for season two. Uh, Ten episodes of great conversations with some uh, even greater humans. It's been a hell of a ride. Uh, We're in the process of planning season three. um, So we will uh, let you know uh, when you can expect that uh, dropping into your feed. Um, We look forward to seeing you all again for season three. I've been Ben Branson Gately, your host, and this has been the Culture Ops Podcast. Mm-hmm.